past few days, I have been away in Liverpool. A couple of scousers in the... No? No, not at all. It's a couple of people just shaking their heads, actually. Um, but I've been away in Liverpool for a few days. I haven't spent a lot of time in Liverpool. <clears throat> but the reason I went up is um, I went up with one of our wonderful bishops in this diocese, Bishop Tony. Um, and he took... I see a few whoops. There you go. Um, and... Uh, Bishop Tony took uh, myself and a few others, and we went up as a team, really to join in um, with some of the uh, some of the mission that um, churches are engaged with um, in Liverpool. And really, we were just up there to um, to be a part of that, and then to sort of support and help people to uh, talk to other people about Jesus better. Basically, we were just trying to help churches engage uh, with telling other people about Jesus. And as part of this. Uh, as part of this week, part, part of this few days, uh, Bishop Tony had organised um, for me and a couple of others to go to Liverpool Prison, uh, Walton Prison, if you know Liverpool particularly well. And I've never been um, in prison before. <laughs> um, for any reason, you know, I have friends that um, have, uh, have worked in prisons. I've had a couple of friends that have been in prison as an inmate, um, and I've had other friends who kind of are Christians that have done work in prisons. But I'd never been in, and I was the only one of us, four of us went in, and I was the only guy that hadn't been inside a prison before. And those of you that know me know that I kind of try to market myself uh, as this like, outgoing, adventurous type. You know, I'm like, I'm like the one that's like, let's take the hill, guys, you know. I, when, I, when I watch that um, speech at the end of Return of the King where Aragorn runs towards the Black Gate, I'm like, come Lord Jesus, that is me. Let it happen, Lord, let it happen. And yet, we got inside the prison and I was shocked by how deeply, deeply uncomfortable I felt. I was so nervous. I sweat a lot anyway, just walking around. But I was, I was sweating. I, 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 I was sweating more than usual as we got into this prison. And I realized I was so nervous, I felt completely out of my depth. And we went upstairs, we had no idea what to expect, this is often the way when Bishop Tony asked you to do something, we had no idea what to expect when we went into this prison, I had no idea what to expect. As so we made our way onto the yard, and we walked up some steps, and we got to this room, basically, where we met a few of the inmates, and then, and then we walked out and there was this space with a whole bunch of chairs set up, and 50 prisoners just sat down, looking at us, and then four chairs just in front of them. And they said, great, are you guys ready there? Um, the, the prisoners are all here ready to just ask you, just to grill you on a few questions. Great. So we sit down, kind of, I sat down sort of tentatively, and I've done a few Q&A things before. I've been, I've been on sort of uh, uh, panels where people sort of ask big questions about faith and life and all that kind of stuff. And so I was kind of getting that hat on, you know. I was sort of thinking, okay, preparing myself for the classic questions. You know, why is there so much suffering in the world if God is so good? Um, you know, why, why religion when there's science? Why has the church made so many mistakes in the past? Why has it been acted so badly. And I was getting myself into this, this frame of mind. By the way, they're all brilliant questions. And if you have those questions, then come along to Alpha on Tuesday. That's a great place to ask them. They're brilliant questions. But the questions that actually started coming out were completely different. There were questions like, 
How do I stop reoffending? One guy asked, How can I help my friends with trauma? And then a guy at the back stood up. He said, Yeah, I've got a question. When should I ask my victims for forgiveness? And that question hit me like a ton of bricks. And it got me thinking for the rest of the day, what would I do if I was the victim? I sort of did that thing that some of us can do where I kind of put myself on a scale, right? And I imagine one of, I, we had no idea, by the way, what the different inmates were in for. Some were in for short periods of time, some 10, 12 years. Well, I sort of did that thing where I kind of, I kind of imagined, my, imagined myself in this situation and imagined what the crime might have been. So I imagined a prisoner coming up to me who had stolen my car and asking for forgiveness. And I thought, you know, I'd probably forgive them. A pretty affable young man, believe in Jesus. It's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I'd probably forgive them. And then I turned the temperature up slightly and I said, well, what if they had assaulted me? What if they had left me hospitalized? And I sat and thought, that would be more difficult, wouldn't it? But I'd probably forgive them. And then I went even deeper and thought, what if this person had sexually assaulted a friend? What if this person had taken away someone I loved? Would I forgive them? I don't know. I cannot say with any certainty that I would. You know, and I'm a Christian, like many of us in here today, I'm a Christian. And I believe, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I believe, I'm not usually this much of a diva, but is, can anyone grab me a glass of water? Oh, you've got one here. The wife's already sorted me out. The wife, Katie, it's her name. <laughs> But I can't say with any certainty that I would forgive that. But, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I know that I have been, been forgiven so much. I look at my own life. I know I need forgiveness daily. If I was talking and a, and a video of my life was playing on these screens, I'd be out of this room for shame. I know that I need forgiveness. And yet there are certain points where I'm like, I don't know if I could extend that to others. I can't say with any certainty. I pray every day, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But I know there are some situations where I cannot say that I would for sure forgive someone. And this tonight, as we come to the end of our series on Jonah, is exactly where Jonah finds himself. Jonah, as we know, um, starts this story, a prophet of God who has been called by God to go to this great city, Nineveh, this evil city, and he bolts in the other direction. And God, in, 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 this, in, in his sort of severe grace, as Eugene Peterson puts it, sends a storm to wake Jonah up. 
sends a storm to call him back to his purpose. Jonah ends up getting thrown overboard. He sinks down to rock bottom and God even appoints a fish in that place to swallow him up. And then he's in the fish and as we looked at in chapter two, Jonah finally gets to the point of praying. He gets to the point of total helplessness and saying, God, I need you. Salvation is from the Lord and the Lord saves him. The Lord rescues him and he is vomited up on a beach by this whale. Jonah has experienced God's grace. He's experienced God's rescue. And yet in this final chapter, he can't bear the thought that others might be rescued. He can't bear the thought that his enemies might be loved by God. A couple of weeks ago, Johnny was in chapter 3. And we, we, we see at the beginning of chapter 3, after Jonah has been vomited up on the shore. I always love that they put that detail in there, that the fish vomited Jonah up. And Jonah's recommissioned by God with the exact same calling as he was given at the beginning of chapter 1. Go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it. But this time Jonah obeys. This is kind of the trajectory of the story, isn't it? That Jonah is this disobedient, rebellious prophet. And then he ends up in the belly of the whale. He prays out to God. God rescues him. And he says, okay, God, this time I'll do it. And so he goes off to Nineveh. He walks into this great city. And he stops. This is about three days' journey. And he clearly stops at this point and says, right, now I'm going to finally say what God has given me to say. And he preaches an eight-word sermon. Some of you are like, yes, an eight-word sermon. Lord, please. He doesn't even mention God in this sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Overthrown being one word in my translation. You cheeky monkeys. Preaches an eight-word sermon. And what happens? The entire city, a city of 120,000 people, about the size of Exeter, or Cambridge, turn from their evil and start praying to God. Just think about this for a second, because when, I, when Johnny was speaking about chapter 3 the other week, I can kind of let this stuff wash over me. What would that have looked like? An, in, an entire city turning to God. You know, Jonah spoke in this eight-word sermon, expecting immediately to be handed into the authorities, if not killed on the spot. And he preaches this eight-word sermon. And instead of finding a blade to cut his throat, he starts to see people fall to their knees and pray to God. But what are the logistics of that? Did, did those people then start praying and then they went and told a whole bunch of different streets? Did they go knocking on doors? I don't know what, what the deal would have been. But I think about the Ninevite army training and hearing about this and dropping their swords and getting down on their knees and starting to pray. I think about households waking up their kids getting everyone in the front room and saying, this bloke came in and preached and now we all need to pray. We've realized our evil and we need to intercede for God to move in our city. What would that have looked like? What would it have tasted like? An entire city, half of Nottingham, 120,000 people turning to God after an eight-word sermon. Jonah is like the ultimate prophet in this moment, right? He has been rebellious. He's run away from God. But he's now become one of the most successful prophets in the whole of Scripture. He is living the prophetic dream. He has said what God has told him to say. And everyone's listened. You'd expect him to be like weeping with joy, right? 
Can you imagine if this was you? It might, maybe he's dancing. You know, you'd at least expect him to, you know, like we do here, that if this was happening, to, to be doing some sort of kind of impromptu ministry, right? With all the people that are praying. Like, like encouraging them in their prayer, teaching them about fasting, and then going around and helping others to do the same. But what we find is that Jonah leaves the city, he goes out on the hillside, and hopes that God might change his mind. The point is this. Jonah sees, in chapter 3, what many of us in here will be praying for. He sees revival. An entire city turning to God. And he hates it. Jonah doesn't want to live in a world where God loves the people he hates. He doesn't want to live in a world where God loves the people that he's deemed unlovable. And he suddenly realizes in this moment that the revival that comes by God's spirit across city, the revival that I truly believe is coming to Nottingham, means sitting next to people that you don't like means calling enemies friends. More than that, it means calling enemies family. Jonah sees revival, and he hates it. Verse 1 of chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles open. Nineveh has repented, and the very first verse we've got is this. My version may be a little different. It's what's on the screen. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. A lot of Hebrew scholars that are much smarter than me say that actually this word displeasure isn't strong enough. They say that when Nineveh repented sorry, and God relented from destroying them, Jonah saw that this was exceedingly evil. Jonah saw what God had done and he said that it was exceedingly evil. And then in the very next verse, we get the ultimate plot twist of the entire book. You know, so far, we've rationalized Jonah running from God because Nineveh is so mental, so crazy, so barbaric, so brutal. We have gone to great lengths over the last six weeks, five weeks, I don't, who knows, I've forgotten. Um, however many weeks, we've gone to great lengths to contextualize this place, Nineveh. This great city that was so evil that its evil had risen up before God. We, you know, we talk about, we spoke a bit about the kind of place Nineveh was. That they would behead people, that they would skin people, that they, 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 would, they, would, they would torture people for fun and entertainment. We said that, that, that Nineveh is like, kind of like an ancient Near Eastern version of, of Nazi Germany or ISIS. One of the most evil, brutalistic societies ever to have existed. And so we have sympathy for Jonah, don't we, when we've been looking at that? Because God says to him, Jonah, I want you to go to that place. I want you to tell you that it's going to be overthrown. And Jonah's like, no. I'm like, I get you. I would be on the first flight out of there. I have sympathy for Jonah. We thought Jonah has fled because he knows that going to the city and saying these things is going to mean his death. He almost certainly thinks it won't work. And yet we find... In verse 2 of chapter 4, 
that Jonah's real reason for fleeing all the way through the story wasn't his fear of the Ninevites, but the goodness of God. It says this, doesn't it? Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord, this is Jonah, and said, O Lord, is this, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. In other words, Jonah's saying, I knew you'd do it. I knew what you were like. I knew that you were compassionate. I knew that you were a God full of love. And I knew that if I came to this city that didn't deserve anything, you would give them everything. If they recognize their evil and if they turn to you, I knew that you would have compassion on them. That's why I fled. Jonah doesn't want to live in a world where God is this good. In a world where God is this forgiving. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, if you haven't been offended by the grace of God. I'm waving my Bible around a lot now. I feel like a Baptist. Command somebody. <laughs> if you haven't been offended by the grace of God, N.T. Wright says, then you haven't fully experienced it. And the problem with God's goodness for Jonah is that God's goodness means that Jonah will have to change. It means that Jonah will have to give up his control and surrender himself to a God whose sense of love is so much broader than his own. A God whose, whose outworking of justice is so much more intricate and beautiful than his sense of justice. Ultimately, it means Jonah would have to change. So Jonah doesn't want to. He says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah didn't want God to love the people that he hated. He didn't want God to love his enemies. Jonah's real idol was exposed. He wanted a God that thought the way he thought, that hated the people he hated, and that would fit into the life that he wanted to live. And yet in revival, he finds that the, the people that he, he would run from, the people that he least wanted to be around, when they turned to God, now become his, his people. He hates that. I said this morning that the next bit I've read, you might think I've taken from a book, but I need you to know that I wrote it. <laughs> Very good. <clears throat> Jonah thought that God was the seasoning on his meal, always to do with food. God wanted Jonah to see that he was the whole kitchen, the chef, and that there was far better food to eat. Tim Keller in his book on Jonah puts it like this. Uh, which one's better, you can decide. Up to you. When Jonah says, in effect, without that, I have no desire to go on, he means that he has lost something that had replaced God as the main joy, reason, and love of his life. He had a relationship with God, but there was something else that he valued more. And then Keller goes on to say, 
When you say, I won't serve you, God, if you don't give me X, then X is your true bottom line, your highest love, your real God, and the thing you most trust and rest in. What is your bottom line? What's mine? What are your conditions for following God? For Jonah, it was that God had to think the way that he thought and like only the people that he liked. Maybe you don't think you've got a bottom line. Well done. Maybe, th- maybe think about the things that you would be tempted to make your bottom line. I've written a few down. Are you happy to follow God? Is for you, is it that I'll follow God as long as I'm in control? Is it God as long as I'm happy? Is it God as long as I'm secure and safe? Is it God as long as I'm successful or useful? Is it God as long as things go to plan? Is it God as long as everyone likes me? Is it God as long as everything makes sense? Is it God as long as I'm special? These aren't bad things. You are special, all of you. You are loved by God, true. You may well be successful. But these things can't be conditions for following God. If they are, then we found our real God. Our real God is happiness, it's control, it's security. And the great irony of the book of Jonah is found in chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles on you, follow, follow with me, if you like. The great irony of the book of Jonah is found in chapter 2. Jonah's prayer from the belly of the whale, he says... In verse 8, for those who pay regard to vain idols forfeit the love of God. In another translation, it says, those who cling to idols forfeit the love of God. Even as Jonah himself is being rescued by God, even as Jonah himself is encountering God's love, he says, not those pagans though. Those lot, those people who cling to idols can never experience God's love. And yet we find... In chapter 4, that the greatest idolater at the end of the story isn't the Ninevites. The greatest idolaters aren't the pagans. The greatest idolater is Jonah. It's Jonah that is sat on the hillside, still clinging to his idol. Still clinging to a God that agreed with his own theological ideas and desires. Gospel reading that we have for today in the Anglican lectionary. Come on now. (laughs) Is Luke 18. It's as if God knows what he's doing. I'll read it again. We read it earlier, but I'll read it again. This is Jesus making this point to some crowds that have gathered around him. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God... I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I always imagine him pointing to the guy. 
I fast, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all my money. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified, went home right before God. For all that exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Just like the Pharisee in this story, Jonah at the end of this, at the, at the end of in chapter four, had forgotten about his core, constant, daily need for God, and instead made a new God. He made a new God that he could justify himself to. He made a new God that he could justify his life to. All of the titles, the title of prophet, the rituals, all of the things that he had based his life around that were supposed to bring him closer to God, in the end had pushed him away. We find that it is not the Ninevites that have an issue with the move of God, but one of the leaders of God's people. And all of us, a Jonah. All of us are the Pharisees. All of us can be tempted to say in church that we're not like those other people. All of us can be tempted to become self-righteous. I know, I know when I've done that and I repent of that. I know when I've believed in God's grace for myself but not for other people. And all the while there are people in our city who don't know the language people who don't care about the coffee. People who are too sweary. People who probably talk during the sermon right now or people that don't talk enough. There are people that are too rich or too poor. People that are socially awkward. People that don't give a damn about Christian celebrity. People that don't care about Christian music. People that don't care about theological debates but are ready to beat their breast and say, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. These are the people that we call family and revival. These are the people that are going to sit next to us as brother and sister. Do we want revival? Do we want a church on fire and a city alive? Do we want to be disrupted to that extent? Jonah sees revival and he runs from it. He waits on the hillside and hopes that the city will still be destroyed. But when we look at the person of Jesus, we see the true Jonah. Jesus moves into the city. He spends his time with people prostitutes, tax collectors, those of doubtful reputation. He heals them. He teaches them. He moves in the city to be with these people and then dies for its salvation. Jonah waits for the city's destruction and Jesus waits for the city's, dies for the city's salvation. And this is why the presence of God to us has to be 
everything. This is why we sing the worship songs. This is why we spend so much time waiting on God. This is why we go on and on and on and on and on and on and on every single week about God's presence. Because if God's presence isn't enough, we'll probably run when revival hits. If God's presence isn't enough, the discomfort will be too much. Because everything else is movable. Teaching, where we sit, the coffee. Some of us have and will be called to sell our homes and move into different parts of the city. Some of us will be called to give in whole different ways, different levels of money, different amounts of money. Some of us that feel nervous around prisons will be called to go and minister to prisoners. When revival comes, everything else apart from God is movable. Anything else is up for grabs. Maybe we won't teach like this. Maybe you won't have me getting all sweaty and passionate on a platform. Maybe we'll just be teaching people across the city because what God's doing is spreading so quickly that the only way to keep up with it is to make church mobile. Everything else but God's presence is movable in revival because what God has is so much better. What God has is a whole city brought to freedom in Christ. Just like Nineveh. How do we navigate this? We need the Holy Spirit, don't we? Only the Holy Spirit can show us people as Jesus sees them. Only the Holy Spirit can stop us from missing the point like Jonah. Or missing the point like the Pharisees. Only the Holy Spirit can open our eyes to when God is on the move and be willing to go with it and find joy in it and celebrate it and dance in it and weep in it. Only the Holy Spirit can lead us in all truth. I just want to finish with this and then we'll pray. Is everyone all right? how much are we willing to believe in God's love for the people that we hate, for the people that we don't like? How much do we want to see God move in this city? I know I need grace tonight, and I need to repent tonight where I am Jonah. And this is the beautiful thing, isn't it, in chapter 4. God has spoke to Jonah through a storm. He has woke him up in the belly of a fish. And here in chapter 4, He just sits with Jonah in his anger and talks to him. Just holds out kindness to him. Holds out grace. Do you do well to be angry? Why don't we stand together and I'll pray.